Just these little audio waves that enter your ears right now are amazing. They can be actually really dangerous. They are rewiring your brain right now, permanently, in some way. You will remember this. You, it will impact what you believe, how you see the world, how you frame future decisions. Welcome to this Intelligence Squared Plus event with the head of TED, Chris Anderson. We're talking about his belief in how ideas change the world. And now more than ever, I think, as we're avoiding interacting the ways we used to, relying on screens to try to sift good ideas from bad, it feels like a very timely conversation. TED, which I'm sure many of you will know, stands for Technology, Entertainment and Design is a global phenomenon. And TED Talks have had over 4 billion views around the world with more than 3 million views every single day. There's the TED annual conference, which is held in Vancouver, and has had the likes of Bill Gates, Monica Lewinsky, and Julian Assange on its stage. Its spin-off, TEDx, has hosted 16,000 events all around the world, and there are more than 2,000 talks on the main TED website, covering everything from artificial intelligence to body language to how to stand up to bullying to how to build a civilization on Mars and why we should all be feminists. The format is an hour for the first 30 minutes, I'm going to be in conversation uh, with Chris. And then in the second half, very much taking your questions. You can start asking them now by clicking on the Ask Questions button under the video screen, typing in your question, and then press send. Um, but welcome, Chris Anderson from New York. Hello. Lovely to be here, Samira. Hello, everyone. Uh well, fantastic. Well, let's just dive straight in, because I was saying before we started, I can remember the day my husband said there's this amazing thing called TED Talks and you've got to watch them. And there was this word of mouth thing about how people discovered them and their power. I'm interested in how you first became involved with what is now TED. Well, back in the day, um, TED was just a conference, an annual conference. Uh, I first went to it in the late 90s. It was trying to bring together technology, entertainment, and design industries. Um, and um, I, I kind of fell in love with it. It was an odd thing, because normally conferences, you go for your professional thing and dive deep and hobnob with people who are in your industry. This was different. This was broader than that. And uh, I didn't know what to make of it at first. But turns out that um, ideas cross-fertilize each other in quite an interesting way, and that if you're open to things coming in from people outside your direct line of work, it can be inspirational. Indeed, I was inspired, I kind of fell in love with it, and a couple of years later, I had a chance to buy it. Uh, ended up buying it, turning it into a nonprofit. That was 2001, and, uh, and then wondering what on earth to do with this thing we had, which was, you know, it was an annual conference and talks that people loved, but, you know, what could we do with that? And uh, it took five years really to discover what's well, really for online video to come along and make it possible to share the content online. And that's, that's when Ted sort of entered its, its new life of being this sort of mechanism to spread ideas around the world. There was obviously a non-profit element to it um, from, from very early on, but I'm interested as well in this idea of trying to do good. And I, I know People have asked this before, but because you grew up in Pakistan, you know, the child of an eye surgeon, a, a Christian evangelist, I wonder if that whole upbringing, that attitude, was fundamental to how you approach something like TED. I mean, who knows? Who, who can unpick their own dark and devious psychology? Um, I, I certainly think life is about more than, you know, just the moment and 
you know, consuming things and whatever. It's I, I think we do influence each other, and it's it's good to try and live for something that's bigger than you are. I think there's actually happiness in that and meaning. So although I'm not religious in the way that my parents were um, now, <laughs> long story. Um, I, uh, I I you know I do, I do believe that it, it's it. You know, it's, it's, it's cool to act on what you believe in and try and work for that bigger purpose. So maybe there's, there's some connection there. But it, it took, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't draw it too tight a parallel, I hope. No. You know, no one likes to be analysed that easily. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but it is interesting. Just, I mean, you know, thinking about you putting all the TED Talks online for free back in 2006, that was quite a radical move. And you'll know there's still lots of anxiety about how much we should give away for free and how much we, you know, content should be something that people get paid for. So I'm interested in the fact that you went that radical that early. Yeah, it, it, I, I think it was radical. And it was partly because of listening to too many TED Talks, which talked about, you know, the, how technology was connecting the world and how information wanted to be free. Um, and um, we, we took a gamble, really, that um, that we'd gain more than we lost by it. Because some people definitely told us we were crazy to give away the crown jewels of the conference and that no one would pay for an expensive ticket, which funded everything that we did. But it turns out that in the connected era, there's this thing called reputation that travels at the speed of light and spreads around the world. And uh, the net effect of giving away those talks was to, I mean, we lost a few people, but the net effect was to radically increase demand for the, the conference. And um, it actually it actually inspired, I would say, our business operating rules from that moment. It turns out that in the connected age, this this idea called radical generosity is um, I, you don't have to look at it in sort of moral terms. It's just a smart thing to do because that that's how you can get leverage. Um, it turns out if you're generous and in a sense, to people. They want to help. They want to respond in kind. And it was that giving away that meant that thousands of people offered to translate the talks for free into many other languages. And, uh, and ultimately, we were able to give away our, our brand as well in the form of TEDx. And, and thousands of people responded to that and started putting on TEDx events all over the world at their own financial risk, expending huge amounts of time building teams and you know, doing stuff that we couldn't possibly do. So there's 10 or, 10 or 12 of those every day now somewhere in the world. You couldn't do that the normal way. But it, by, you know, by taking a risk and giving stuff away, it's, it's kind of amazing what can come back in this connected age. Was there a particular talk or, or, or talks that really set you off on thinking this has to be done in a free, open way? I mean, there were, there were a lot of people, you know, back in the in the sort of the early 2000s, there was still a lot of idealism about the internet back then. You know, we'd been through the dot-com bust um, and people were seeing just amazing behaviors. You had things like Wikipedia taking off where just by, you know, a huge crowd of people could edit something together and make something amazing. And there was this sense that if you gave people a chance to do something together, they, they would, and you could be amazed at the, at the outcome. So people like Stuart Brand is famous. He, he's a TED member. He's famous for sort of saying information wants to be free. Kevin Kelly, uh, there's a speaker, Howard Rheingold, talking about the cooperation online, various other sort of, you know, theorists. And it, it sort of, I mean, it kind of made, made weird sense that people, you know, that, and, and, and by the way, I think a key, I think if it had been a business, it would have been harder to justify the 
financial risk there. Because we were, in any case, a nonprofit trying to do this for the public good, that, that made the decision a lot easier. It was like, hello, of course, these things could inspire more people than just the people who could pay to come to a conference. Why not give it away? And, uh, and as it turned out, it, it worked out beautifully. I was looking back at the, uh, the the time when you made the announcement about it, um, it becoming this um, non-profit, and you announced that there would be an unchanging commitment to truth, curiosity, diversity, no selling, no corporate BS, no bandwagoning. I was really interested in, it was a very clear list of things to you. Yes. Um, you know, I think, I think a lot of conferences can, because it's hard to make money and off, often from live events. Um, they can easily get captured by corporate interests and um, there's sort of um, a mixed feeling for people coming that they're actually, this is all being done in the service of sponsors. Um, the whole point about TED is that um, you, you get your best thinking by, by just going where the excitement is, where the interest is, just allowing yourself to be catalyzed by ideas across disciplinary boundaries and that that has to be your your focus. Just go where curiosity takes you. And, uh, and that's the key to these sort of little sparks of electricity that catalyze new thinking and new creativity. And so I just, people didn't know who I was back at the time. And I just, I just wanted to make clear that this was not, there was no sort of commercial plan behind this. No one was trying to get rich off it. It was, it was just, I just loved the experience of seeing what happens when you let ideas connect across different fields of thought. How would you describe or sum up what you'd say you're trying to achieve through TED? <laughs> I think today, I mean, we're in such a consequential moment for the world right now. There's, the stakes seem unbelievably high. Maybe they always seem high. I think, I think what's at stake is whether the world fractures and whether we sort of fall into fear and loathing of each other and continue the sort of um, frankly horrifying uh, divisiveness that's happened over the last couple of years where people have tended to use even like the tools of technology to spark anger and disgust in each other instead of doing what they could be doing with those, those tools. Are we going to go on that journey still, really, when we're facing this common enemy, this this it's not exactly an existential threat, but it's, it's one of the most dangerous threats we faced in, in decades. Um, common enemies are supposed to pull people together. So which way are we going to go? And I, I think the battle of ideas around this um, matters more than ever. So yeah, so at TED, we're trying to build a community of people who don't buy that we have to be divisive, that they think that people have more to learn from each other, more to gain from each other than ever, that we actually were capable of working together. What humans' superpower is the ability to simulate possible futures in our minds, in our minds. We don't have to do it. You know, we can't do it. It's the future. We don't have access to it, but we can simulate it, and we can share the simulations, and we can share preferences about them and say, God, it would be incredible if we could do this together. Why don't we build that future? The fact that we can do that is a miracle, and, and the fact that we waste that superpower so much is, is horrifying. It's, it's really horrifying. And so I don't know. I, 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 I think, I hope that what, what Ted can contribute to, just as you, you guys contribute to, honestly, is 
the promotion of reason, the promotion of learning, the promotion of people nudging each other to be their better selves. There is no communication medium more powerful than human speaking to human to trigger those, those biological responses around, God, I, I want to be part of this. I want to support this. I'm inspired by this. I want to work with this person. Um, so it's not just about like spreading ideas in a cold way, like here's a scientific paper, peer reviewed, da, 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 da. It, it is that, but it's more than that. It's like, what will we do with this together? And so I, I, I think we're trying to build a community of people who believe in future possibility, and they believe in humans' ability to choose good possibility of a bad possibility and to work together to, to, to get there. Um, I wouldn't overstate our ability to contribute to that, but it's, but it's worth trying to contribute to that at least a little bit. I know that um, certainly reading a lot about Ted and who speaks and who doesn't speak, um, Ted has been quite good at ev avoiding pseudoscience, which is a huge concern right now, now more than ever, in a sense, as we look at all the, the random stuff that certain public figures spout about possible cures and the rest of it. And I'm interested in, in a sense, how you decide where your line is on what you won't have a talk about, because there are all kinds of theories being promoted as supposedly scientific, aren't there? Yeah, indeed. Um, it's It's not easy. Science is not a here is the truth, you know, is it in the book or is it not in the book? Science is uh, a process. It's, it's humanity's, it's the best process humanity has ever invented to try, to try to approach the truth. And more specifically, to try to eliminate things that aren't true or that don't make sense. And so we're, we're Ted is a passionate believer in, in science that like we, we, you know, that has to be, if, if you want to validate what is a good idea or not, you, there is no um, better tool um, than, than buying into science. So at one level, I guess, where there is clear scientific consensus on something, then you go with that and you don't give a lot of space to things that, um, you know, dismiss that. So climate, for example, the risk of climate change would be an example. That is politically, that is regarded as in some places as a divisive subject. Yes. Scientifically, it's not that divisive, um, at least not the basic, the, you know, the basic finding. I mean, it's a physical, it's a fact of physics that greenhouse gases warm a planet and we're making them. So hello. Um, there are though, um, there are scientific ideas that are controversial and, um, and science has progressed by sometimes giving, you know, voice to re like real debates. So, so long as someone is, um, believes clearly in science and is making an argument from a, from a credible scientific viewpoint, we certainly welcome some controversy. But Can you give an example clearly... of something controversial that you've, you've taken on? Well, it's tricky, you know, like, like I, we, we got into um, a, a, a bit of trouble once, I guess, with, um, you know, w by, by giving the platform to Elaine Morgan, who's, who's, I think she's passed away now. I hope, hope I'm not wrong in saying that. But uh, she, was, she was a science writer who was passionate about this idea that humans went through an aquatic phase, aquatic ape phase, and that that described a lot of their behavior. And that, that is basically dismissed by many um, scientists. And arguably, that was a little too far to the edge. But she was coming at it from all her arguments for it were phrased in the language of, 
of science. It wasn't, you know, and so, so I don't know, it was such a delightful and provocative theory that we, um, you know, we, we gave her the platform for that. Um, it's, it's, it's hard to make the call and, uh, and, and we don't always get it right, but we, we do have in the last couple of years, we've built a, a, a bigger, stronger sort of scientific curation team. We look hard at stuff. If, if we get something wrong, we'll try to update it later. And, um, alert people if there are critiques of something. Oh, that's really interesting, partly because you mentioned Wikipedia earlier. And I think there's been a big disillusionment for some people about the gap between the, the great ideal of it and the reality of the, the lack of diversity and who's, you know, who's curating it and, this, and the lack of truth on it, which people often take as a, a primary source. And I think it's, Ted is in a much stronger position that way. Part of what you've raised, which is my next question, which is about who gets to speak. And I was struck by how people like Monica Lewinsky chose to break her silence on the trauma of her young life after her affair with uh, Bill Clinton um, was, was exposed and used by um, politicians. Um, and I'm really interested in how people like that do choose to use TED. And, and to some extent, are you involved in kind of cultivating and winning the trust of people like that? Yeah, I think she actually, she gave one of the talk um, um, ahead of that. And we saw that and reached out to her. And um, she was very nervous about coming to TED. And, you know, it's, it's, it can be an intimidating moment for people. And so there was literally a, a sort of a four or five month preparation process there. She got comfortable with what she wanted to say, got comfortable with us. Um, she nearly pulled out a couple of times. And, and yes, I think there's probably, um, given the humiliation she had been through, or she certainly felt she'd been through um, in, in the past, to come and speak the way she did at, at Ted, you know, that was definitely a scary moment. And she pulled it off with extraordinary aplomb. And I think, it, I think she would say now that it was life changing for her because it, it gave her a new way, a new public platform. She is now a woman standing up against cyberbullying and um and and um you know she's she's it's been wonderful getting to know actually she's a, she's a lovely person she's funny she's wise and um and that 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 talk uh, that was that was a spectacular moment there's actually you can feel the moment in that talk where you know she she started into it nervously she gave you know it was it was really a, it was a joke it was a little bit of humor and she didn't know how people would react to that. The place, you know, everyone laughed and you could hear her sigh, that sort of sigh of relief. Okay, I'm here, this is gonna be okay. And, uh, and on she went and it was, it was a big hit, yeah. And equally, there've been people like the inventor and author, William um, Kamkwabam, Cam uh, Kwamba, who spoke about building a wind turbine in his village in Malawi and was funded by venture capitalists um, as a result. Is that right? Yeah, he was. He came to uh, a conference we had in, in Africa, in Tanzania, our first, our first conference there, um, just as a, as a member of the audience. And we, we heard about this story and, um, you know, spoke with him for five minutes on the main stage. And yes, as a 14-year-old boy, he'd, he'd put together bicycle uh, parts from a bicycle and a few other sort of makeshift parts to, to create this um, windmill that powered his parents' home and eventually, you know, started to do more for the village. An, ama an amazing young man. And uh, he ended up 
getting great schooling. He went to Dartmouth. Um, he's, he's, he's just a wonderful inventor. And it was so inspiring to know that all around the world, there are, there are people who are creative and brilliant. And the, I guess the tragedy is that so many of those creative minds never get a chance to be what they might be. You know, how many Einsteins were born at a time when they had no access to scientific education? How many Mozarts were born without access to a piano or music? Um, and um, uh, that, that sort of sense of undiscovered possibility is, is well, it's, it's thrilling when you, when you discover it. Can I flip it then? Because there are guests who one could argue are controversial. You mentioned one in passing with the science theory. But thinking of someone like Julian Assange, who really divides people, and in his own way, Edward Snowden, who took part from Russia. And I wonder what your thinking is when you, when you do involve those people, because obviously it is thought through. Yeah. Well, we took a, a risk on Julian Assange. At the time he came, he um, came to a conference in Oxford, I want to say, um, and um, it, um, this was before some of the allegations against him. It was, it was kind of after he had kind of broken out as, um, you know, breaking the, the footage of the, <clears throat> the U.S. military attack yes. and. Um, he, he was, you know, I actually asked the TED audience at the time, after we'd had a conversation about his approach, do you regard him as, uh, you know, villain or hero? And uh, the, the distinct majority voted hero in that instance. Um, I, I'm not sure whether it would be quite the same vote now. Um, he's, he's a complicated person, but I mean, um, it, you know, I think, I think we see our job as to try and engage with people who have something interesting to say, something that we could learn from, this whole question of how much information should be held secret, it, that's a valid uh, topic for debate. And both he and Edward Snowden took risks, um, you know, to bring information out to the public. And, and people um, disagree on how they, how they view that. But uh, I'm, I'm happy that we spoke with both of them at the time, as I say, you know, New facts come in, opinions change. That's, that's how it should be. And it's important that we don't ever present things, you know, this is the truth once and for all, as it were. Ideas are constantly shifting. You'll know that there are people who complain that TED Talks have become a bit of a cult. Everything is awesome, inspirational. And crucially, that ideas aren't challenged because there's no Q&A, no pushback at the event. What do you say? Um, if that was true, they would be right. <laughs> Um, they, there is actually quite a bit of pushback. First of all, the whole curation process we go through, there's a lot of um, um, internal research debate as to whether we think someone's ideas are, are, you know, this is the right moment to try to share them. Um, at the conferences and on stage, there's, there's often um, Q&A. Not all of it makes it to the final edit that is seen online. And... Um, uh, and so, I, on the one hand, I, I totally agree that, that um, I, ideas are never should be presented as, you know, here it is, here's the gospel truth down from above, take it and spread it. That, you know, that's, that's not right, um, that they, 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 they are improved by critiquing. And um, I, I think we've definitely made some mistakes in the past of people who've gone out with, with something that is lightweight, um, not, not fully argued. Uh, we're, we're pretty determined not to do that. And... 
you know, the last couple of years we've, we've added new formats like podcasts where there's like an hour long interview with someone where you can explore ideas at much greater depth and indeed a few debates such as the wonderful debates that you engage in. Um, excellent. Um, you've hinted at, um, you know, that there's, there's comment stream, there's, there's kind of fact-checking. Ideas don't always land fully formed. But I'm interested also in the activating of the best ideas. And could you tell me a bit more about that? Do you have a thing called the Audacious Project? <laughs> yeah, so, so um, our tagline for a long time has been ideas were spreading. And we've seen that as our main mission, to just find the best people, let the ideas out there in the world, and then trust that the power of those ideas will work their own magic. Um, in the last few years, we've, we've felt that there might be some more that we should do, uh, because it turns out that just the existence of an idea, even if it's an idea in millions of minds, you could have millions of people inspired by an, by an idea, but nothing happens. So that's a riddle. What does it take to actually activate an idea? And um, um, it's actually an unsolved problem. Um, there are very few instances online, for example, of the effective organizing of millions of people to enact a specific vision. Um, and, and so we, we've started trying to do different things about that. One model is to find someone who has a powerful idea and knows how to activate it. And basically all they need is funding. Um, the non, you know, there's, there's a pretty good process in place to fund businesses. There's terrible processes in place to, to fund nonprofit ideas. Um, there's no equivalent to venture capitalists. There's no equivalent to an IPO. Uh, some of the world's best change makers spend 60, 70, 80% of their time pleading with one donor after another to try and, you know, raise money for something that's actually quite powerful. That is a tragedy. You've got these great souls who are wasting their time on that instead of actually doing the work. So the Audacious Project is an attempt to accelerate that process, to try to identify the boldest not-for-profit ideas that are out there in the world, um, but that requires significant amounts of money, more than someone could easily get from a donor, to filter them, find the best of them, and then put them in front of multiple donors at one time. So it's kind of like trying to make a, a bit of a market for the biggest, boldest ideas. And when it works, it, you, you can end up, we've ended up with raising really remarkable amounts of money for some super powerful ideas. Um, we funded 15 to 20 of them at this, at this point and raised more than a billion dollars in the process. And it's kind of been a miracle to see that happen. And um, we'll see where that goes. But um, yeah, so that, that, that is one attempt to actually turn certain types of bold idea into action. And can I just ask, talking about exactly where we are now in terms of watching, you know, COVID-19 have this massive uh, damaging impact all over the world. Are you already thinking about who you might get on TED Talks? You know, who are the people that you, whose voices you want to be amplifying right now? Yeah, so we've, we've already done um, a, a certain amount of that. Um, Actually, just for the Audacious Project, we've, we've funded three specific ideas of people who are trying to respond right now, whether it's dis distributing food or engaged in, in smart contact tracing. And uh, so that, that, that's been exciting to see. Um, and in terms of voices, we've had a series of conversations with key people 
Who presented your idea? So Bill Gates came and spoke about how the big warning he gave on TED five years ago had been kind of ignored and what we needed to do now. Um, there was a great conversation with um, Professor Danielle Allen, who's, who's at Harvard, who's putting together a, a team of people trying to really figure out what is the way that we get out of this, that we get back to work without pr promoting a second surge. Uh, I found that, I found her thinking really interesting. And it's, you know, it's, again, it's this combination of, of testing and contact tracing and using technology a bit, but not too much and so forth. Um, really, really complicated and challenging, but important conversations. And so we, we, uh, we're going to have a lot more of those in the coming weeks. Excellent. Right, let's go to questions. Um, so remember that you can um, submit your questions um, by typing them in and hitting send below the video screen. The first one is from um, Mark Kinvig. Who are the people who can make the biggest difference today? And he gives four groups, politicians, academics, social entrepreneurs or celebrities. Huh. I mean, the truth is they can all make a difference. Um, um, some of them aren't making the difference they could or should. I, mean, I think many of us have been disappointed with political leadership. Um, academics have a really important role to play in terms of both in the, in the science, um, the questions around how do we get to the vaccine, um, what therapeutics are going to work, how do we accelerate testing or whatever. Academics have, have and are playing a big role. And one of the most exciting things actually of the moment is the rising credibility and attention paid to to scientists and to you know experts generally in the space they've um, we, we kind of forgotten that we needed experts a bit and um, so that that's been good social entrepreneurs have an infinite array of possibilities that they can engage in as well and um, so I, I I think it's I honestly think it's it's all of us there's there's um, the way that this, like anyone with a social media account, frankly, has, has an important role to play because what happens to the conversation over the next year, I think is, is crucial. You can see scenarios where the world descends into a sort of horrifying um, distrust, blaming, um, and it could get super ugly out there. And you also see amazing stories of people making the effort to reach out to each other and find a new language. I mean, there's a scenario where this shakeup is the thing that it takes to shake us out of the the kind of sick dynamic that was happening on social media for the last two or three years. We we just find it's actually more interesting to listen and follow and support someone who has something positive to say than someone who's got yet another way of of you know pouring disgust on on the people we hate. You know, it's. Uh, which way is that going to go? It's it's a very very complex and fragile and hard to read situation right now, and everyone has a play, part to play. Okay, joke question you might have expected. This is from um, Graham Davis. Why have you chosen to just be an interviewee this evening instead of starting the event with a pithy and brilliant TED style twelve minute speech? <laughs> Well, A, I wasn't invited to. B, I'm not that great a speaker. Um, I've got to see a bunch of hundreds and hundreds of amazing speakers, so much so that I had the, um, the um, courage to write a book about public speaking. But, but I am not a great public speaker, so you were frankly spared. But um, 
without giving us all the points in the book, what is the, the nub of a great TED Talk? What makes a great TED Talk? It's about that there's no formula. That's the key thing. Like I, I, some people approach a talk as if there's a formula and we cannot stand that uh, when that happens. So there's many different ways to give one. But the, really the key thing is, is just to have a gift for the, for the people who are listening. You know, an idea. An idea is potentially a gift that they will value for the rest of their life. An idea, just these little audio waves that enter your ears right now, are amazing. They can be actually really dangerous. They are rewiring your brain right now permanently in some way. You will remember this. You, it will impact what you believe, how you see the world, how you frame future decisions. And so, so the speak, if, if a speaker comes thinking, oh, here's a platform, I've got a chance to get my name out there and um, have people buy my book or whatever, buy my service, you know, that's a disaster. If people come with it saying, wow, I've learned a few things. I'd, I would love to share something that really matters to me into the world with this audience. And I can do so in 15 minutes. I can show them. So that's the start point. To make that happen, you just need to be focused. You have to plan on saying one main thing, a, a single through line. Almost all the best TED Talks have a, a single through line that connects them. And it builds, and you first of all see why this matters, and then you see why their particular approach to it might make sense, and then you see stories that make it come home, and uh, and and finally, hopefully, you know, you're you're convinced and/or inspired, and um, and and you have then something in you that you didn't have before that could forever change you. So that, that's what you're looking for is that okay. gift. Now, I'm sure you will have been asked this before, so I hope you have an answer. And Anthony Wormsley's question is, what is your favourite TED Talk of all time? <laughs> I, I deliberately change my favourite talk the whole, the whole time because what would be the point of just having one? I mean, um, there, there are too many. I normally, you know, I mean, I'm a slightly nerdy person and I, I like some of the nerdy speakers. There's a, a, a British thinker in Oxford, David Deutsch, who I love his talks and the way he thinks. But at the moment, like on on COVID, um, you know, I, I Professor Daniel Daniel Allen's talk. I really liked her thinking. Um, that was actually an interview. It was an extended interview, but I I like that. If if you're coming to TED, don't look for someone's favorite talk. Look, you know, that it's personalized now, so you can go in and say a bit about you and what you're interested in. And we have, you know, an AI that is supposed to find the best talks for you. <laughs> and okay. so that's what I'd recommend you do. Well, here's an interesting uh, variant on the last question. Um, this is from Mark Roberts. Uh, Chris, what do you think has been the most influential TED Talk, not just in terms of views, but impacting the world in terms of cultural change or, or impacting policy? Hmm. It's probably it's probably um, Sir Ken Robinson's talk on education and the, the role that creativity needs to play in it, and that, that got forgotten. So this um, was one of the most the most viewed TED talk, isn't it? About whether schools are stifling creativity. That's sort of the the question yeah. it poses. It's, yeah, that's right, and it's it's funny and delightful and and wonderful. Um, um, but I think the biggest influence of TED has actually not been from a single issue or idea. I think it's been the impact that watching TED Talks has on people generally, which is that it tends to nudge them from being 
a spectator to being a participant. Like it, it has, you start with curiosity, you listen, and you end up thinking, I could act on something. And so I, I think the biggest impact, honestly, is that it's, it's persuaded a lot of people to want to be part of writing the future, not just dreading it. Okay, our next question is from Katerina Januskova. I hope I've said that correctly. Um, hi, Chris. In the almost 20 years that you've looked after Ted, what and who are you most proud of? I mean, I'm, I'm obviously, you know, I've... There's a team now of 200 people, 250 people in New York who, who make the thing run and do some of the things that people haven't heard of, like the TED-Ed program that we have, but which, by the way, is good for homeschooling if you're doing that right now. Um, um, the, the TEDx volunteers around. I think, I think I'd probably say the, te the TEDx army around the world. Of, there's probably 50,000 people who are helping produce these 3,500 TEDx events that happen annually, and um, they're amazing. Now, they're, they're spending huge parts of their time advancing our mission um, on their own dime, and um, uh, they're extraordinary. And I think the fact that we let them do that, uh, you know, that I'm just so, so glad that we, that we did that. They're amazing. Excellent. Right. Um, oh, this is an interesting question. This is from Sophie Dow. Hello, Chris. I had the privilege of giving a TED Talk, but found the most difficult thing was that I was not allowed to have my script with me. I was petrified of forgetting my lines, which made it impossible for me to be relaxed. I would have loved to have had another go, but with my script in hand as a safety net, would you loosen the rules to allow that? There are lots of interesting questions about the rules, aren't there? <laughs> yeah, that, that's actually not a rule. We, we, we but, encourage, Monica we encourage had people. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, but, um, what, what it people must have been a rule when she did it. No, um, she, she probably gave the talk uh, at a TEDx and maybe a TEDx organizer who I've just been praising <laughs> imposed that as a rule. I mean, lots of speakers carry note cards and glance down. Um, sometimes that gets edited out from the talk that you see. Um, 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 so, I, and, and we definitely encourage people to have uh, a script if they want it, even if you. Um, like Mark Ronson, when he, he came, you know, he gave a wonderful, accomplished talk. But he had a script with his bottle of water at the back. And when he lost his way, he just went off for a glass of water, picked up a script, came back, didn't stop it being a blockbuster talk. Yeah. So, yeah, no, you, you should have had your script. Okay, there you go, Sophie, hope that helps. Um, Alexa Tamzet has asked our next question for you, Chris. I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts on free speech, particularly with your tagline, ideas worth spreading. To what extent is TED filtering ideas and how is that managed when curating a public narrative? Very much a concern at the moment, isn't there, about um, the ideas that, that take off and, and public responsibility? Yeah, I mean... We obviously believe in free speech. Um, we don't have to give the platform to anyone who asks it. So it's like there's a curation, there's an important role for curation. Our, our tagline is ideas worth spreading. So we try to uh, say, you know, is there something of interest here that deserves further dissemination? So, so we, we can't guarantee that we're a platform for everyone. Paul Barnett, he was asking, is Ted trying to do much what much of the media does less of, which is investigative journalism. And I was talking about how Carol Cadwallader's presentation was absolutely striking. And she's an investigative journalist who actually doesn't have unanimous support in Britain. There are those who attack her work on Cambridge Analytica and um, attempts to rig 
polling. Um, what are your views about Ted's role in investigative journalism today? If, if someone comes up with knowledge that deserves wider dissemination, then we'd love them to use our platform. Uh, we haven't had, we've had four or five talks by investigative journalists talking about what, they, what they've discovered, um, including one um, from a journalist who, who was masked the whole time because uh, did, did not want their identity revealed. Um, it, so it's, it's valid. I don't, I, we should probably do it more, uh, honestly. But it's on political controversy is hard, though. Like we, in general, when people go into political debate mode, a big part of them shuts down. They, they know that they, you know, there is a right and wrong answer. They have a position. They have a tribe they have to belong to. And people's um, calm and curious investigation of ideas can often go out the window. So we, we don't, where we can, we um, avoid politics. And, uh, and when we can't, we go for it. Yeah. All right. Next question is from Sibby Jacob, um, who asks, what is your definition of ideas? Which actually is quite a good question, isn't it? What, what floats as a, a thing that would make a TED talk? Yeah, I think an, an idea is anything that changes someone's worldview. Um, my, my picture is that, is that we have in our heads these building blocks that collectively make up a worldview. You know, that right at the bottom, there's language and concepts and just general categories of the world. And, and they, they build up into this operating system that, um, that changes what we do. Um, so if I have an idea, you know, that a tiger and its sharp teeth are dangerous, that idea will make me run in a different direction should I see one. And, um, and, and every idea, has some kind of implication at some point for a possible future action. It's, it's again, it's a, it's an amazing superpower that we have that we can um, put into place these things that allow us to navigate the world wisely and safely. And uh, and then it extends to, you know, I mean, there are specific ideas like the example I gave, and then just you know broader ideas about what is the wise way to be on the planet. You know that compassion is a really powerful thing that humans should embrace. Um, you know, there's all, there's all kinds of different ideas from political, moral, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it, but that, that's what I'd say. It's, it's just, in a nutshell, it's any <laughs> anything that goes to contribute to your worldview. That counts as an idea. Next question is from Robert Weinberg. Uh, Robert asks, uh, do you ever encourage speakers with whose ideas you do not agree? Um, well, as I mentioned, you know, the, um, the tagline is ideas worth spreading. So, so we often have people where we're not sure. We think this is, this is a valid thing to debate. If we think something is actually dangerous, uh, then, then, then no. But other things, um, like l loads and loads and loads of speakers have very different priorities or whatever than what any given curator at, uh, at TED would, would think. So we'd like to, I'd like to say there's, you know, there's just this very wide variety of views out there. And, uh, and, uh, and yeah, I think everyone at TED, our minds change all the time on lots of different things. So if, if something is, is like a, a valid part of a current debate, bring them on, absolutely. 
Excellent. Um, lots more questions. And just to remind people, um, um, thank you for your patience. There are lots of questions coming in to get through and you can tweet us using the hashtag IQ2. Um, will there be a TED Talks, the movie? This is a question from Paul Sanger. And if not, why not? <laughs> Uh, it's never been suggested, although TED Talks have appeared in, in several movies, often in slightly weird ways. But um, yeah, um, they? Yeah. I, th I think I think uh, they almost made it into the Muppet movie. I don't know, whatever. There's, there's um, I mean, what's it? You know, no. <laughs> I, I think we have we have enough ways of dissemination on the web right now. We don't, the last thing anyone wants to do is sit through something for 90 minutes and I don't know. But, but okay. if you have a better idea for me, Paul, you know, send me the script and who knows. Oh, just so you know, so Sophie Dow, who asked the question earlier um, about not being able to use her script, says, thank you, it was a TEDx talk. And from now on, I shall always refer to Chris Anderson when someone says I can't bring my script. So thank you for clearing that one up. Um, next question is from, um, Let's have a look. It is from Charlotte Hall. I have recently curated a TEDx event, and that has definitely inspired me to be a participant in changing the future of the world. This is obviously something Chris has done through TED. Um, do you have any advice on how you went about mobilizing such a large-scale change idea? Hmm. Charlotte, thank you for, for doing that, by the way. That's, that's a lot of work and a lot of stress. Um, I, I actually, in some ways, a big part of me doesn't like the language of changing the world. Like it sounds, it sounds yeah, a little grandiose. No, it's, it's a little too grandiose. And I, I, I think the truth is every single person changes the world, whether they like it or not. I mean, they, we, we all have influence, um, you know, and, and tiny little bits of influence can have incredible impacts. Think about the little mutation that happened in a virus or that, you know, a few months ago that, um, um, you know, that caused literally trillions of dollars of damage and, and um, hundreds of thousands of deaths. You know, it's like <laughs> things much smaller than human decision-making can have unbelievable impacts on the future. So we all do impact the future, but change the world. I, 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 I don't like the language very much. What I like is, is just people being, just being part of it, being part of helping, helping nudge the future. Um, that, that, that attitude is fundamentally healthy. It, it, can sh it is so depressing to think of the world as just something that comes to us. Um, it's, it's disempowering. It's, it's scary. Uh, it's yeah, it's depressing, and it's 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 exciting just to, to so what, what, you know. In I've, I've just always liked the attempt to believe to take it as an assumption that we can look at one little thing in the future, edit it a bit go for that. And then that, that feels satisfying. Um, right. Question from Sibby Jacob. What is your way of finding success? Is there a cookbook for success? Well, first of all, what, what, what is success? Success is traditionally defined as, um, for, for a lot of people, as just material success. And um, it's pretty clear that that's a terrible definition of success, that, you know, the link um, between happiness and material success is very tenuous. Um, if your only goal in life was to be personally happy, even then you shouldn't anchor that in material success. So I, I think the first step is, is what, what, what do you define as success? Um, um, 
I think, I think ultimately the way that you get stuff done in the world is you persuade other people to do it with you. Not, not many people can do much by themselves. To get stuff done, you have to get other people excited. And the joyful, the single most joyful thing about TED has been the fact that by saying, look, this is our mission, we just want to share ideas that we think are worth sharing. Um, and you can be part of that. That turns out to be motivating to a lot of people. And so we've had, you know, it's 25,000 volunteer translators and all these TEDxes and so, so forth. Come, come and be part of it. And so I, that's what I'd say is, is probably the best thing is try, try and um, figure out what you can offer, what you can say to people that will make them want to come on a journey with you. Um, question from Mark Williams. What's the curation process? So right now we have we have a team of about eight or nine um, curators looking at um, different of them focused on different areas whether it's you know business science uh, art and design technology current affairs global issues and so forth um, and um, they they do a lot of their own research and that that's where now most of the speakers come in we also look at the suggestions we get online we get about thirty thousand suggestions from the public in a given year wow. um, and um, so it's some artful combination of all that. And then when, we've, when we invite a speaker, they will then often go through a multi-month process to get a talk ready to the point where um, you know, they're satisfied with it and it can work. And it's, it's weird, you know, like anyone can give an hour-long talk where they talk about all the things that they're interested in. It's really hard to give a 10- or 12-minute talk that is designed to be the, the, the most you know, powerful argument that you can make right at this moment. It's really hard. You have to cut out so much of what you want, and then you have to structure it in a way that will bring people with you. It's hard to do. Um, two questions are going to put together because um, it's related. One is from Kushal Patel. Chris, can you give us insight into some of the future roadmap of what TED has planned? And Prasanth Kancharya, what's next for TED? How do you see the future of TED? And I'm interested both in the short term with the impact mm. of obviously responding as you have been to the coronavirus situation, but also the, the longer term roadmap. Yeah. Um, I'll say two things. One, one I briefly mentioned, which is just that um, we're leaning into activating ideas to try and to try and make them mean something. So um, part of that so audacious project, part of it is that we're doing events that take on specifically issues that we care about. So like climate, we're doing a big conference um, next year um, on climate, which can't, you know, which is kind of in a way, got shoveled out of the spotlight in the last few months. We can't afford that. You know, the, if, if the virus has proved anything, it's that science, scientists should be listened to and that there's a much bigger common enemy coming our way. And so, anyway, so that's, that's one big thing we're doing. That's called Countdown. It kicks off this year, 10, 10, 2020. Um, and then there'll be a bigger conference next year. That event, 10, 10, 2020, will be open to the world, by the way. Um, um, but the other thing I would say is in this moment, we've had to reinvent our entire business model. I mean, we're in the middle of that. Like, it suddenly became clear a month ago that, I don't know, 30, 40% of our revenue was probably not going to come in. Um, and you're, and um, you know, as with so many other companies and orgs, facing a, a, a quite troubling financial situation. Um, but as anyone who's watched TED Talks will know, constraints are an excuse to be creative. And um, just as you were doing, um, we, we, we both 
in organizations that aren't dependent on the physical world. Like, the, the, you know, we live in the world of, of ideas and issues. And thank God, you know, the internet is still with us. Ideas can flow really powerfully still, and in some ways more so than ever, because people aren't going about their normal lives. They're spending more time reevaluating, thinking, wondering, wondering what their priorities are. And so I've been saying to the team, you know, Ted was made for this moment. This is, you know, if we can't, if we can't reinvent ourselves now, you know, what's, what's wrong with us? And so part of what that reinvention will look like is, I think, less dependence on a big annual conference where we get a lot of our revenues and so forth and trying to find um, um, membership programs, if you like, that will allow virtual participation by a much larger number of people. Um, conferences are wonderful, but there's a limit to how many people you can have before they no longer feel intimate um, and satisfying. Um, on virtual experience, there's a lot more you can do. So we're experimenting with a lot. We're in the process of converting this year's conference um, to an eight-week experience instead of a one-week experience. And, um, and I, I hope that within the next few months, we'll be unveiling um, memberships to people that allow a type of TED experience that we've never thought of doing before because we've never had to, and now we do have to. So that's what we're reinventing for. Okay, a couple of quick questions to finish with. One is just, um, do you keep a gender ratio of your speakers? Uh, yes and no. We, we don't, I, I don't believe in sort of checkbox curation. Um, I think that's tricky, but we do, um, you know, the TED I inherited uh, or took over 20 years ago was probably 75, 80% male speakers and so forth. We've been on a journey since then. I think, I think in the last year we've posted probably as many talks by women as, as men. But um, um, so we, 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 we have a conscious policy to look uh, ha harder to find the amazing women who are out there because for lots of historical reasons that you all know, it's been harder for their voices to be heard. And, and so we've, we, you know, we, we own that. We owe the world that because uh, they, they often have uh, the best to offer. Um, but, um, but, you know, our mission is ideas we're spreading. We're looking for the best ideas as well. So I think it, I would say it's not, it's not a specific ratio, but we are fighting hard to give women uh, the visibility on our platform that they deserve. And it's good to hear you recognize the importance. If you collect the data, then you know if there might be a problem that needs redressing. It doesn't mean that you're committed to a, a quota as such. Um, the final question I have to ask, um, you've talked a little about how TED is having to change in responding to the challenges of everyone under lockdown. Can I ask how you are dealing with the lockdown? Um, almost in a personal way. I know you've talked a bit about the conferences, but the kind of two are connected, aren't they? It's such a part of your life. Yeah. I mean, it's been a roller coaster. Um, there have been moments of high anxiety. Um, I, I, the honest truth is that I'm feeling guilty at how much I'm enjoying this. Like, I, 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 I like reinventing. I like the challenge. Um, it's, it's exciting to reimagine all these different things, these different ways, perhaps better ways that we can engage with the world. Uh, I have an incredible team, um, albeit scattered, and um, it's, 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 it's been the most amazing few weeks. It's really been amazing. And, um, 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm aware that um, maybe people listening to this, someone may have lost someone dear to them, and, you know, talk of excitement at the moment can seem unbelievably tone deaf. Um, uh, so there's, there's that, and that, that may well, you know, I'm lucky enough that no one in my closest circle has been taken out by this thing. Um, so put, put that caveat on the side that everyone has listened to this in, in different circumstances. Uh, but but as, a, as a creative moment, as a professional moment, um, it's, it's just an amazing opportunity to, to reinvent, reimagine, recreate. And uh, I mean, I'm honestly enjoying that aspect. It is a, definitely a moment that could change the world. Um, uh, Chris Anderson, thank you so much. Thank you to everyone um, watching from home for your brilliant questions. Thank you so much, Intelligence Squared, for putting it all together.